Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We are a family on a journey to become more like Christ, sharing His kingdom by expressing His love. We hope that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. Our Father God, we want to thank you for this morning. We thank you for a wonderful time of being in your presence where we acknowledge your Lordship. We acknowledge the greatness of who you are. We acknowledge, Lord God, that you are the King of all glory. And we want to thank you, Father, that we have the privilege of coming to sit and allow your word, your truth, to speak into our hearts and lives this morning. And so we say to you this morning, Holy Spirit, here we are. Hearts and minds open and attentive to your word. Would you speak to us this morning and work in us that which is lacking? In Jesus' mighty name, amen. On this exact day, exactly 16 years and one month ago, I did something that would change my life forever. I knelt before my then girlfriend and asked her if she would marry me. And as you know, she settled. I'll never forget that day. It was a cold, rainy, windy. It's not just like some spook story. It's the truth. It was cold, properly cold. One of those rainy and windy winter's days in Cape Town. And my original desire was to take her up to Cirrus because there'd been snow. But of course, the week leading up to that day, the sun came out a little bit and the rains came down and all the, all the snow got washed away. But I do remember I picked her up, I bought her a beanie and some gloves, and I whisked her away to a beach that I knew of close to Betty's Bay. It's a private beach. It's not open to the public, but it's beautiful. It's It's huge huge sand dunes, wide beach. It's perfect for a miserable winter's day, right? And I took her out there, and I remember getting into the car, and she said something. No, I didn't pick a fight with you. I ended a fight with you. She said something about, about, about one day marriage or something, and I, I, I acted very upset because I wanted to throw her off the scent, you know. I didn't want her to be onto what I was doing, so I, was, I let her know I was upset. You know, don't pressure me. Stop. You know, why are you going down? Why do you have to put prayer? I remember going on like that for a while. Anyway, we sorted that out, and we, got, we eventually got to the beach, and it was cold and miserable, and I said, come, I've got a picnic. I know it's too cold, but I still want to show you the beach. And so we walked out onto the dune, and uh, I said, I've got a pair of gloves for you, and and as I put on the right-hand glove, I put in one of the fingers a tag. You've got to throw her off the scent here so that she put on the glove and went, there's something in this glove, and then pulled out the tag. And I went, oh, I don't know how that got there. You know these people. Put the tag away. And then I put on the, the, the left-hand glove, and in the ring finger there was another, another tag. And it wasn't really the tag. It was actually the ring. And she pulled it out, and she stood there, and she looked at it and started crying. I was a little offended because it's the best I could afford. Of course, when she looked again, I was on my knee, and I asked, I said some things, I won't tell you exactly what I said, but I humbled myself before my wife, and I literally put the course of my future into her hands, or should I say, onto her hand. And while that was not an act of worship, 
it was certainly an act of adoration, and it was an act of blessing. It was an act of love, and thankfully she said yes. And the rest, as we know, is history. Now, I'm sure you'll all agree that while that defining, well, it certainly was a defining moment in my life, what really matters is not what I said to Helen on that moment, on that sand dune. It didn't really matter how expensive the ring was. What really matters, what really mattered, is what I did the moment after I got up from being on my knee. What really matters is not the pretty words I said, or the ring, or the occasion, or the beach. What matters is the follow-through. You see, I could have said all kinds of things in a romantic moment, right? But it's not so much those romantic moments that make the difference. We remember them, but it's what we do after those moments that really counts, isn't it? What matters is how I live up to that moment every single day. What matters is that I maintain a posture of serving, of submission and honoring towards my wife. Not just now and again, but always. Wouldn't you agree with me? Psalm 103 verses 1 and 2 is a psalm we're all familiar with. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let everything in me bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then it goes on to list them. Who heals diseases, who redeems our life from destruction, who forgives us. And it goes on to name these wonderful attributes of what God is like. But this word bless is where I want to start this morning. And it's a Hebrew word, the Hebrew word barak. And the word means to kneel and it means to adore. To kneel and to adore. Hebrew language and Hebrew worship is very expressive. There's actually seven different words for the word praise or bless or worship God. Seven different Hebrew words, all of which have varying expressions. None of them are passive. Some of the Hebrew words for worship and praise involve dancing around wildly, lots of jumping, very expressive. Have you ever seen Jewish people celebrate? It's generally in a circle, and there's lots of dancing, and it's lots of celebrating, it's, it's, and this is what they do. Uh, other forms are being prostrate before the Lord, face down. This one, the image, the word or the image, Barak, conjures a blessing, but it conjures the posture of kneeling of kneeling. Kneeling for God before God is considered a position of worship. It's a con- it, why is it, folks, that we come into, when we come together on a Sunday, you know, the, the old charismatic or the Pentecostal procedure is two or three fast songs, two or three slow songs, right? You have to do it that way because that's just the way you do it, right? Is there method in that formula? I hate the word, but, but, but in, the, in that procedure, Well, yes, there is. The Bible says we come into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. We come into saying, God, you are awesome. You are amazing. You have done great things. You are worthy of adoration. You are great. You are God. I am not. And as a result, we barak. As a result of who you are and who I am in your presence, I kneel before you. I worship you. It is a place of worship. It is a place of adoration. 
It is a place of surrender. To say, I am yours. You are God and I am not. That place of being on our knees, that posture, is one of vulnerability. When somebody goes to be knighted, I've always thought, you know, they go down on one knee and the king or the queen takes the sword and denies them. That is a place of great vulnerability. One sneeze and it could all be over. Not everybody sneezes like I do, I know, but can you imagine? Oops, too late, she cried. That place of kneeling is a place, not just of vulnerability, but it's a place of devotion and service. That's what it means. It's a place of devotion and service. When I knelt before my wife that day, I said to her, from this day forward, I will be devoted to you and devoted to serve you, to lay down my life before, for you. That's what the Bible commands. That's what God expects of me as a husband. And when she said, I do, she said, for the rest of my life, I'm going to live to serve you and to put your needs first, and I will be devoted to you. When you have a marriage where two people are working together like that, you have a picture of what heaven is like on earth. But most of all, most of all, this posture of kneeling is one of submission. Submission. It's one of saying, I am going to come under your mission. I'm coming under, I'm getting underneath your instruction. I am submitting myself to your will for me in this situation. Now, we've just had a time of worship. The posture of our heart, you could very well say, was one of Barak, of coming, of adoring, of coming and telling God how wonderful He is. But I want you to know, and we're going to look at Scripture, that we need to be aware of two very important aspects when we consider this posture of submission, this posture of kneeling before God and being submissive in His presence. Number one, we need to be aware of the true state of our hearts while we are kneeling. What is really going on inside? And we also need to be aware of what happens after. When we get up from that place, has anything changed? Has anything been realigned? Has there been any genuine repentance? Repentance basically means I was thinking and going in this direction, but because of a revelation of you, an encounter with you and with your presence, I am now heading in this direction. There's a change. That moment is a watershed moment. God is a good and a wonderful God. His acts and His heart toward us should cause us to naturally respond with the Barak style of worship. This adoration and submission because of who He is. When we get a true picture of who God is, that is the only fitting response. Look at the chapter, Isaiah chapter 6. He comes into the presence of God. He hears the angels singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. He sees the train of His robe fill the temple. And what is His response? Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And He bows and He falls to His knees and He worships and He adores according to truth. The truth of who God is, He's far greater than I could ever have imagined, and the truth of who I am. I thought I was something. I thought I was doing okay. I thought my acts of worship were acceptable to God. But now in His presence, I see the truth that I am a man of unclean lips. I couldn't see it, but in His presence, I realized the truth. Now, we often do this act of submission 
these outward expressions of worship and of praise. When we come to God as we are and we receive Him as our Savior. But I want to say to you this morning, we need to realize that even in our approach, even in the way we come to worship, you and I all have the potential to be deceived. Into thinking our heart attitude is right. Into thinking God is happy and, ac- and accepts our offerings of praise and worship with glee in His heart. But I want to read to you some things where this posture of kneeling and worship, which acknowledges lordship, which communicates blessing and adoration, which communicates submission, how easily and how quickly it can be perverted. And I think that as I do so this morning, you will see how even in your own heart and life these things can creep in. Because as I've prepared this, I've seen how over the years, in my heart, through seasons, these things have crept in. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 to 10 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So even our acts of submission and of worship, and in doing these acts, we have the potential to deceive ourselves. Remember last week, Pastor Andreas preached, and he read from the book of James, where, uh, James 3 or James 5, I think it was, where it says that those who hear the word but do not do it deceive themselves. And the deception is that somehow because I know something about God or I know something about His law or His works or His ways, that that knowledge means that that truth is operational in my life, that I'm walking out that truth, that I'm living and that I'm experiencing the fruit of that truth, but it's just not true because, as they say, the proof is in the pudding. You shall know a tree by its fruit. You know, sometimes, I don't know if you've ever had this, you go to the nursery, you buy the tree, you buy the bush with the label on it, and you plant it, only to find months later, it's not what was advertised. Right? And that's kind of what the deception is like. It's because I bear this name, Christian. How many of you know Christians who are not very Christ-like? Let's take a look at some examples. The first one I want to look at comes out of the book of Matthew, Matthew 20 to 20, verse 20 to 21. And this has to do with the mother of James and John. And the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking him, and asking from him. So we see here the right posture. She comes to him. She kneels down before him. What does that communicate? Submission, honor, potentially adoration, So the outward action communicates all the right things. And then he said to her, what do you wish? And as he opened the door for her to reveal what was really on her heart, what her true motive was for her actions, she said, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one at your right hand and the other on the left, when you come into your kingdom. What was her true motive? Was it for adoring the king? Was it to see his lordship expressed? No, she had a completely different motive. She she knew who she was dealing with, and she knew that he had authority, and he had the ability to, you know, put things in a way that favored her. You know what they say? It's not what you know, it's who you know. If I speak to so-and-so, he'll be able to shift things, and he'll be able to make a way. and, And that's what she was doing here with Jesus. This is a Jewish mama. I bet you she was like, 
Jesus, remember all those times you sit in our house and you had, had Shabbat with us and the family? You know, I know, I, you know, at the beginning, the time when you were walking around with all your friends, all the boys all the time, we were a bit worried and a bit concerned. We heard all these miracles. You know, Jesus, my favorite one is when you wiped that schmutz in that one's eye and he could see again. It was amazing, all these stories. You know, Jesus, my boys have been faithful to you, hey? My boys have been so good to you. You've been right there all along, all by your side. You know how good they've been to you, hey? Mustn't forget the sacrifices they had to make, hey? You know how their father's struggling in the business now so they can follow you? Yeah? So you know what, Jesus? You must remember them when you come into... Who knows what it looked like? That's just how my brain works. But from that position, her true heart was revealed. She wasn't there to really worship. She was there because she wanted some things done for her family. Let's look at another example. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 22. Now, as he was going on the road, Jesus, one came running and then knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Again, recognition as the teacher, this good rabbi. Recognition through, through kneeling before him and saying to him, I want eternal life. In, uh, what does that say in that language, in that culture? Uh, how do I please God? How do I, you know, what is the right things to do? And Jesus answered his question and says, well, why do you call me good? No one is good except one, that is God. But you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, or do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered him and said, teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. So in my estimation, I'm doing all the right things. I'm going to church. I'm paying my tithes. I'm giving offerings and first fruits. I'm giving to the poor. I'm not swearing at my boss like all of my colleagues are doing. I'm not causing any trouble. I'm trying to keep the peace. I'm just trying to keep my nose clean. I'm doing all the stuff that I know to do. And surely God is pleased with my efforts. Surely God must be happy. And he looks at me and every time I pay my tithe, he smiles. And every time when it's cold and I get out of bed and come to church anyways, even though I don't really want to. In fact, the fact that I don't want to means God is even more impressed with my sacrifice. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word. Why? And he went away sorrowful, for he had many possessions. He had great possessions. You see, he wanted to do all the right things in his own strength and in his own effort to somehow earn the favor of God, but he was not willing to lay down that which was truly dear for him. There was something in his life that held a point of higher priority in his heart. And though the outward action, coming to kneel before Jesus and saying all the right things, I've done all the right things, God. I've kept all the laws, God, Jesus. And if we do not praise, <laughs> you see, while these people adopted the outward posture of worship, their true motives were to bless themselves, was self-gratification. It was, I recognize that this is one who has power and the ability to change things, even in my favor and in my situation. And so I will come and I will present myself before him 
but I do so with the true motive inside my heart that if I please and appease him, he will do things for my good. Even his word says so, right? God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to? Ah, you see, we don't like that second part. We like to say that God, does all, you know, God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and who go to church and who pay and who give and who do all the right things. But that's not what the verse says. Those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Not my purposes. Not my plans. Not my business. Not my career. Not my reputation. Not the financial status I want to live I'm not worshiping God so that I can be blessed. But I come and I kneel so that I may be truly and fully devoted to His plans and His purposes for this vessel in this life. I want to say to you, all of us can fall into this trap from one time to another. None of us are immune. And as I've said, I've seen some of these traits coming up in my heart from time to time. I see them in my prayer life sometimes. And, I'm pray- and I stop for a while and I evaluate and I say, God. Gosh, all I've been praying about is myself and my situation and asking you to do something for me and me and me and me and me. And me and my situation and me and my family and me and my lot and me and my this. Forgive me, God. What do you want from me? What is on your heart and mind for me and for my life? You see, even that which starts in sincerity can be perverted along the way. Because things happen. Things happen in life that may be painful. They may be struggle. They may require patience in faith. And as we're enduring, we're all tempted to start feeling a little bit sorry for ourselves. I don't deserve this, do I? I deserve a little more. I feel this way, especially on the days when I've gone for a run. Surely I've earned a milkshake. Surely I've earned a chocolate. I've earned a a, a pudding. I've earned a something sweet. I need a blessing for my sacrifice. may sound silly, but the same reasoning enters into our spiritual walk with God. I did something that God must be happy with, and so therefore surely there's reciprocity in this. Our worship gets perverted when it becomes focused on ourselves when it becomes all about what God can do for me. Yes, God is good. He loves to meet our needs. He invites us to come and to ask and inquire of Him. He does because He loves us. He cares for us deeply more than we can ever imagine. He loves to show Himself strong on our behalf. But for what purpose? You see, it's one thing to have God as my safety net and my vending machine. Those are the words somebody spoke to me this week, and they've just stuck with me. It's one thing to have God as my safety net. God will take care of us. God will take care of me. And as my vending machine, I pop in a few prayers, and bloop, 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 out comes the thing. I don't know about you, but sometimes my vending machine gets stuck. I don't know if you have ever gone to a vending machine, and you've put in the numbers, and you put in the money, and it goes, and your, your packet of chips gets stuck. And this violence comes over you. And you bang and you shake and you kick. The price has been paid. It belongs to me. It's my right. There's something wrong here. And we do the same thing with God in prayer. 
I did what you said. I prayed the word you said. I did what you told me to do, and it's not working. And we start becoming violent. Listen, church, this is what Isaiah said. The prophet, 29 verse 13. So, and so the Lord says, the peop- these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. They know how to kneel. They come and they do all the right things on the outside, but on the inside, they're still so full of self. They're still so centered on what's good for them and how I can meet their needs and bless them. In, in the book of Matthew, Jesus speaks about the same thing. He calls back to this very scripture in Matthew 15, 7 to 9. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy to you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What a stinging rebuke. In vain do they worship me. In vain. Let's bring this to our, our, our own circumstances, to our own here and now, and think this one through a little bit. If I'm doing all the right things, and I'm coming to church, and I'm engaging in worship, and I'm coming to the prayer meeting, and, and I'm having my quiet, and I'm reading my Bible, but nothing in me is shifting or changing, I'm doing all of these outward acts in vain because my heart is far from God's. Isn't that sobering to think of? That we can go through the motions, folks, year after year, year, not month after month, some of us year after year, and do the right things on the outside, but our heart remains hard and untouched by the presence of God and the Word of God. We remain unyielding to His plans and purposes while we continue to pursue our own. And our pursuit of Him is simply so that He will bless our own. Let's look at another example from Scripture. The ten lepers that were cleansed. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then, as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. So here we see, we don't see the same posture of worship coming, but we understand why. They're standing afar off, they're lepers, they can't come close. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, as they went, they were cleansed. So Jesus gave a word. They obeyed the word and they got the desired result. Amen? But what was the response? And one of them, say one, when he saw he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And so here we see again that Barak, that falling down, that worshiping, that place of submission and adoration, and in this case, blessing. He's bringing in the same theme. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and bless him for healing my disease. Bless him for his mercy on me. And he came and prostrated himself before the Lord and said, Thank you. 
And he was a Samaritan. And so Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But why, where are the nine? Were there not, were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. You know, I don't believe that Jesus withdrew the healing of those other nine. But here's the truth. Those other nine got what they wanted. And that's all they wanted. That's all they wanted. And so that's all they got. They had no hunger for the presence of God. They had no hunger or desire for the heart of God. What they wanted was their needs met. They wanted to be accepted back into society. Their own agenda became fulfilled. And the true condition of their hearts was revealed. It's clear to see from this story that experiencing God's favor and power does not automatically lead to worship. Some of us think it will. Oh, give God praise when this comes through or that happens or this change takes place. Folks, if you've got to wait for them, that's not true praise at all. If you cannot praise God in the midst of where you are at, is that any true praise at all? Getting what we want from God does not lead to submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a big difference between a believer and a disciple. A believer believes and is happy to receive his salvation. He's happy to receive from the hand of God all the wonderful blessings that God so freely gives. The Bible says he pours out his blessing on the just and the unjust because God is a generous God. That's who he is. And believers, many believers, receive the wonderful salvation of Jesus. But not all go on to be disciples. Not all are willing to pay that price. It's like when Jesus was ministering to the multitudes and he says to them, you're only coming after me for what you can get. And then he cranked up the heat and he said, listen, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And when one said to him, not in the same occurrence, but one said to him, Lord, let me just go and take care of my father. Let me bury him and then I'll follow you. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. You come. And follow me. And to another he said, Let me, can, I, can I just take care of this thing? Jesus said, look, anyone looking back who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, in other words, still has other agendas and other priorities, he says, is not worthy of me. And so he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, otherwise you have no part of me. And they left him. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can do this? Because they didn't truly understand they were not after the spiritual riches and the wealth and the wisdom that Jesus was trying to convey. They were not after the kingdom of God. They were after having their needs met. And so Jesus says to the disciples, you can also go. <laughs> you're free to go. Don't, follow. Don't feel that you're tired. Don't feel that you're stuck here. And to which they responded, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. There was a measure of the seed of the kingdom that was already alive and at work and producing fruit in their lives. What do our lives look like outside these moments of worship? What are our heart attitudes? What do they convey to God and to the world around us once we leave this place and we've sung our songs and we've prayed our prayers? Do they express the lordship of Jesus or do we simply carry on living for ourselves until we need his intervention again? David writes about it this way, Psalm 51, 16 to 17. 
You do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The kneeling, the songs, all of these things, we think they move your heart and make you so pleased. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Again, in Psalm 40, verse 6 to 8, I'll read to you from the New Living Translation. You take no delight in sacrifices or offerings. Now that you have made me listen, I finally understand. You don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. Then I said, look, I have come, as it is written about me in the Scriptures. I take joy in doing your will. My God, for your instructions are written on my heart. I take joy in your will. Your will, God. Not my will, your will. Not my will, your will. This psalm is a prophetic psalm. It speaks of this new covenant where it talks about the law, the law of Jesus, the law of love, of sacrificial love being written on the hearts of God's people. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 8 and 9 speaks of it. It says, first Christ said, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they, were, they are required by the law of Moses. Then he said, look, I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. Folks, the old covenant was based on law. The old covenant was based about on doing the right things, making the sacrifices, making the atonements, bringing the offerings. But this new covenant that we are a part of, Jesus gets right to the heart of things. And he says, look, if your heart's not even in it, you're wasting your time. If your heart is not in the right place, it's all nothing. It doesn't mean anything. It profits you nothing. That's why Jesus said, listen to the words of Jesus. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, if you've got hatred in your heart, that that spirit of murder is already there. And you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I'm saying to you, listen, if you look 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 at a woman and you lust after her, that spirit of adultery is already at work within your heart. It may not have found outward manifestation yet, but if you deal with that, you'll never have to worry about the outward expression. If you don't sow into those areas of your life, they will never grow into producing the fruit of that sin. God is after your heart, blessed believer. He's after a motive and a heart attitude that says, God, I have abandoned myself to you. I live and exist no longer just for my glory and my comfort, but for you. This is a journey. Coming to this place and living and walking this out is not something we pray once on a Sunday morning and then magically it happens. It's a daily walk of putting the needs of others first, of putting the agenda of God and His kingdom first. Matthew 6.33, Seek ye First, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then all these other things that, listen, the truth is your heart longs after. I will add to you. But if you will do the work of putting me first, putting me first in your time, putting me first in your finances, putting me first in your affections. Folks, our affections are powerful things. And what we wrap our affections around, ultimately we will wrap our heart around. 
But I want to say to you that you are a creature who has a will given by God for you to choose what it is you wrap your affections around. Amen? You're not always going to feel the warm fuzzies, but you do get to choose to put God first or to put yourself first. And this is what Jesus himself demonstrated for us. Luke 22, verses 41 to 42. It's out in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it says this, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he, he knelt down and he prayed. But we can see that this outward expression of submission and adoration was not just a one-moment thing. Because he said there, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Clearly, that's my will, God. Lord, it's my will that you take this cup from me. Please, if there is any other way, let it be so. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It is from this position that Jesus arose as the Lamb of God ready for slaughter. What mattered to you and to me is not the words that he uttered in that moment. Not that moment of intimacy. Not that moment in the presence of God where he was close and where he was communing with God. Where, where the angels were there ministering. What happened, what, what matters to you and to me is not even necessarily the words of that prayer. What matters to you and to me is what Jesus did when he got up from that floor in the garden. When he got up from the ground. What really matters, blessed believers, is not the posture of our body in worship, but it's the posture of our hearts before God Almighty every moment of every day. Does our worship on a Sunday have any bearing on how we live out our Monday? Have we believed the lie that God is pleased simply because we showed up? And we thought that was enough. Somehow we've done him a favor by being here. Rather than the truth that what pleases God is when we die to self so that he may live through us. The last scripture I want to read as I close out is, comes from Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. And it says, therefore, as a result of this truth that I've shared with you this morning, as a result of realizing that, hey, even my acts of worship can be laced with deception because of what's really going on within my own heart, because of the things I'm struggling through and working through. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy of Jesus' heart was simply to do the will of his Father. No more, 
and no less. Simple. Let me ask you today, if you think to yourself, in your quiet moments, if you look through your prayer life, if you look through your diary and your schedule, what is the true posture of your heart? Are you still laboring in self-effort, struggling to work out and to please God, to do all the right things and say all the right things at all the right times so that you somehow don't get in trouble from God or from the people around you? Or is there a, has your heart found that place of rest that place of surrender, of complete trust in God and complete submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's the question I want to leave you with today. It's something I want you to think about during this week. It's something that if I've shared with you this morning and there's conviction in your heart, we can pray a prayer now, but as I've said, it's not just these moments. It's tomorrow morning. It's Tuesday and Wednesday where these things truly need to find their expression. The wonderful thing is that Jesus is a loving and a patient Lord. The wonderful thing is that He is not waiting for you to come just within arm's reach. Like a naughty child who, as soon as he's in arm's reach of the parent, now I got you and he's your buckslaw. Jesus is not like that. He's waiting for us to come because he cares deeply about us. The will and the plans and the desires that you have for your life here on earth do not have the power within them to grant you salvation and an eternity with Jesus. No matter how good your plans may be. Only Jesus can do that. Would you stand with me? We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.